Do you ever wonder if you're really a Christian? Is that something you ever worry about? You ever have those moments in your life that you doubt your own salvation? You, know, you, you look around and you see other people who are sold out for Jesus and you think, I feel like they have something that I don't. But the problem is that you say you're a Christian, you've gone to church for a long time, and yet you wrestle. Now, sometimes when I, I hear about our missions partners overseas and I see these men and women who are just sold out and they've sold everything, they've given everything, they're willing to lay down their lives for the gospel, I, I see them and I wonder, do they know Jesus in a way that, that we don't, that I don't? Do they have something that I don't have? When I first started coming to church, I sat down with somebody who explained to me the gospel. You know, he told me that we're departed or we're separated from God because of our sin and Jesus died. And he walked through the whole thing and he said, do you believe that? I said, yes, I believe it. I said, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Yes. Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Yes. He said, well, then congratulations, you're saved. I'm like, good, good. Right? And so for a long time, every time I wrestled with my own kind of spiritual state, I would look back at a moment like that and say, no, I prayed the prayer. No, I stepped into the kingdom. No, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead. I don't have to worry about it. But I kept worrying about it. I worried about when I read words like Jesus' words, when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not I cast out demons in your name and do many miracles for you? And he said, I tell you the truth on that day, I'll look at you and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, those passages scared me more than I felt like my little prayer had saved me. I got nervous when I read the words of the Apostle Paul when he says, examine yourselves to see if you're truly in the faith. I got scared when I read words like the Apostle James, who said, you believe in God? You believe there's one God? Good. The demons believe that and shudder. James says there's a chance that you have a faith that's not a saving faith, that you have a faith in Jesus, but that for all works and effects, your faith is dead. So a lot of times when we think about faith, we know technically we should have this assurance that we're Christians because we prayed a prayer, because we signed a card, because we walked an aisle, because we raised a hand, because we got on our knees, because we invited Jesus into our hearts. But the problem is none of that's in the Bible. And when we read the Bible, we start getting nervous because the faith that we see exuded in the scriptures doesn't seem to match the faith that we see demonstrated in our own lives. We're in a series called Walking with Jesus. And I know it might seem really weird that like five weeks into the series, we're talking about how to know if you're really a Christian or not. But the reason we're talking about this this week is that we've just been following the Apostle Peter and the other disciples as they've walked with Jesus. And now we're 19 chapters in. We're like almost done. And at this point, the disciples are wrestling with this very question. They're hearing Jesus teaching about what it means to be a part of his kingdom, what it means to be a follower of his, how to know if you're truly a Christian. And their responses to Jesus range from, Jesus, if what you're saying is true, 
no one will want to be a Christian, to Jesus, if what you're saying is true, who could possibly be saved? So if Peter can walk with Jesus and walk on water and leave everything and see Jesus transfigured and hear, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and worship Jesus and then be filled with doubt, I think we can too. And so I want to read the words of Jesus to the disciples this morning and help us learn how we can wrestle with the answer to this question for ourselves. Now, I have no desire this morning to freak you out. I don't want anyone in this room who's a Christian to walk out thinking that they aren't one. But even more than that, I'm terrified this morning that some of you who think you are Christians but are not might walk out of this room thinking you are one and have a false sense of assurance that you know God when you don't. And so I think that's one of the reasons that God puts these scriptures into the Bible Because I think it's very likely that there are many people in this world, including people in this room, who think they know Jesus, but the truth is Jesus does not know them in the way they think they know him. So I want to read this. This is Matthew chapter 19. It's going to be a fun one this morning. Why are you laughing? It's going to be a fun one this morning. As we read this passage, allow yourself to be a little bit scared, and I promise we'll do some good work this morning. Matthew 19, 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Have you heard of these before? You shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? This is the word of the Lord. One of the fun things about being a pastor or a teacher or a church leader is that every time you teach the Bible, you get a lot of people who come to you and they want to ask you a bunch of questions, some relating to the topic and some totally off the wall, right? And so sometimes we'll finish the service and somebody will come and say, hey, you said this, what did it mean? Or, hey, my dog died, is it going to heaven, right? Or, hey, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Or, hey, do I need to baptize my children, right? All of these theological questions. And it's kind of fun for me and for church leaders to be able to kind of bounce around from topic to topic and help people by giving them advice of, this is what the Bible says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. 
Jesus experienced that as he walked around Israel and people would come to him and ask him questions, some genuine, some to test him, some to kind of figure out what he was all about. And we get to see the range of these questions in a chapter like Matthew 19. And more than that, the disciples get to sit there and be onlookers and listen as Jesus explains again and again and again what life in his kingdom is like. And so the disciples are there and Peter is there as the Pharisees come to test Jesus. And they say, Jesus, what do you teach in your kingdom about divorce? And Jesus says, well, in my kingdom, we don't believe in divorce. In my kingdom, you're married for life. Unless there's infidelity, adultery, Whoever you marry is going to be your husband or your wife until the end of your life. That's what we teach in my kingdom. And the disciples are like over there like, oh, Jesus, this is not good. And somebody jokes from one of the disciples, Jesus, if this is the case between a man and a woman, it's better not to get married, right? Who's with me? But Jesus doesn't back down. He says, hey, I get it. Some people, because the way, they're, the way they are born, are not going to be able to enter into marriage as I define it in the kingdom of heaven. Some people, because of trauma they've experienced in this world, in this life, are not going to be able to step into marriage in my kingdom. I get that. Some people are just going to hear what I call marriage and how I define it and how it's fleshed out and that it's for life. And they're going to say, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to live single for the rest of my days because of the kingdom of heaven. It's a hard teaching. I get it. That's what I teach. If you can accept it, accept it. So they're like, oh my gosh. I feel like when I watch the disciples, I picture them like aspiring gospel salesmen. Like Jesus is training them to be like his witnesses someday. And so they're putting themselves in his shoes thinking, am I supposed to teach this to people someday? This is crazy. And these little kids start coming up to Jesus. They're like, get away from him. We're having a big boy discussion, right? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Let the kids come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And the disciples are like, what does that even mean? I don't know what that means. And then these aspiring gospel salesmen, they watch as this rich, well-to-do, well-educated, apparently godly, religiously-minded young man comes to Jesus and seems genuinely interested in following him. Now, I've never been in sales but I feel like one of the first rules of sales is don't make it really hard for people who want to buy your product. But Jesus makes it really hard for this guy who seems interested in the kingdom of heaven. He says, Jesus, what good thing do I need to do to enter into your kingdom? And Jesus makes a joke about no one's good for God alone, right? If you want to enter my kingdom, you know what it says. You've read the Bible. Do what it says. He's like, well, what do I need to do? He gives him the Ten Commandments. Do those. He's like, I've done that. But you can tell in this man's life, he knows there's still something missing. Right? He's tried to do the good thing. He's gone to church. He's been the religious person. He's read the Bible. He knows all that. He's done it. But he feels like there's still something broken in his soul. And so he says, teacher, what else? And Jesus knows the state of this man's soul as well. He says, okay, there's actually something that you lack. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the disciples watch as this man's face falls. And Matthew says he goes away sad because he's of great wealth. And Jesus turns back to them and he laments. He says, it's so hard 
for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. It's so hard. It's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's like they won't let go of their stuff. And you can sense the like introspective dread in the minds of the disciples when they look back at Jesus. And at verse 25, it says, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? If your teachings are so hard, if you're calling us to sacrifice everything, if you want nothing less than all of us, who possibly will ever be qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven? This is disciples who walked with Jesus. These aren't people who are like in the periphery of his life. They knew what he was teaching. And as they watched it play out in real life, they realized that the cost of discipleship, according to Jesus, was one that no one seemed like they'd ever be willing to pay. I think they're thinking about their own lives in the same way that we think about our own lives when we read a passage like this. If Jesus asked me to leave everything at a moment's notice and follow him, would I? I was thinking this morning, it's so sad to look on the news and see all of these people who are evacuating their homes. The fires are getting closer. And in a moment, a police officer shows up and says, get out, it's time to go. And they've got no time. They take nothing. They just leave everything and follow (laughs) the police officer to safety. In a sense, we would do that too. And if Castro Valley, if Hayward, San Lorenzo was on fire and someone said evacuate, we would just drop everything and go. And part of what I feel like Jesus is saying is there are some things in this world you would be willing to leave everything for. What about me? You'll leave your house at a moment's notice if a fire's coming. But will you lose your possessions, drop it all, drop your agenda and follow me just for me? You seem more scared of the fires in the hills than the fires of hell. You seem more compelled by the knocking on the door of a police officer than knocking on the door of your heart by the God of heaven and earth who says, come with me. It's like, I can't let go. Or if somebody refused to leave their house and they burned down inside of it, we would say that's crazy and lamentable and sad that they were that consumed with their possessions that they would lose their life for them. That's the analogy Jesus uses. He says, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find eternal life. Just let go and come. Let's go, let's go, let's go. He tells this rich rich young ruler, just come on, leave it all behind. Come with me. And he says, no. And we get scared and the disciples get scared because we know how rare it is that a human being would let go of everything to follow Jesus. People on the missions field lose their lives. People in other countries give their lives. People on the missions field leave everything. But we don't. And we, who are, I'm sure, much richer than this rich young ruler was, are haunted by those words of Jesus when he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. They won't let go of their stupid stuff. And they die and they burn down and they go to hell because they were scared they couldn't have a boat if they followed Jesus because they're scared they wouldn't own a house if they followed Jesus. There's something broken in our hearts that the disciples realized. If you need to surrender fully 
to be a Christian, who's going to get saved? And Jesus gives an answer that's like slightly reassuring. He says, with man, in verse 26, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. There's nothing in you that will ever be willing to let go of everything for a God you cannot see. It's impossible. That's the human condition. Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. What this means is, right, for those of you who are Christians, you're believers in Jesus, you've surrendered your life to the Lord, if that's you, what this means is that it is only because of God's grace that any human being, including yourself, ever becomes a Christian. That's part of what Jesus is teaching. There is no way to enter in the kingdom of God unless the grace of God comes upon you and releases your own grip on your own life, on your stuff, on the world around you, on your family, until God allows your heart to soften and makes it possible for you to let go of that and cling on to Jesus, it's not going to happen. It's only by God's grace, if you're a Christian, that you are one. And that's a beautiful truth. A lot of you said amen because it's amazing, right? That's great. But it's only slightly reassuring because it answers the question of how someone might be saved, but it doesn't answer the question of if you are one of those people. Because if you are someone who's unwilling to let go and follow Jesus, if you're one of those people, it's because God has softened your heart. But if you're not one of those people, there's nothing you can do to make you one of those people except for pray that God would open your heart to be faithful to what he's called you to be about. I kind of envy the disciples because they got to walk with Jesus. And then I feel for them because they had this unmistakable reality right in front of them of how crazy it is to enter the kingdom of heaven and how hard it is and how the demands of Jesus were so high, how he wants people to give their whole lives. And I feel like if, if our faith is this emotional roller coaster, they were with Jesus. So it's probably like, whoa, whoa, like you're walking on water, then you're called the devil, then you're like, crazy roller coaster of life. And the disciples have been kind of going back and forth with Jesus in this whole section here. And as they're listening to Jesus' demands of what it takes to follow them, follow him, Peter has this like micro epiphany. He realizes that if Jesus is calling humans to drop everything to follow him and enter his kingdom, Peter realizes, wait, I actually did that. It's like in his mind, he goes back to that moment. He was on the seashore and he was fishing and he was pursuing his own livelihood. And Jesus walked by and said, if anyone wants to come after me, deny themselves. He didn't say that. Jesus came by and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And something came over Peter. We find out now it's the Spirit of God. Something came over Peter that he just drops his nets, leaves them on the deck, and just starts walking after Jesus. Like in that moment, he left everything behind. He left his nets behind. He left his livelihood behind. He left his family behind. He left his legacy behind. He left the family business behind. He left his friends behind. He left his home behind. He left his city behind. He left his wife behind. He left it all behind and just like started walking after Jesus. And he realized as Jesus was trying to get someone else to do the same thing, that yes, this is terribly impossible, but also I kind of did that, didn't I? And so Peter exclaims to Jesus in the midst of all of this, he says, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? 
And Jesus reassures him. He says, no one who's left family, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, money and livelihood and all that, and houses for my sake, will, inher- will not inherit that much more, 10 times more, 100 times more in eternal life. You did the right thing. It was a good investment. You know, what I love about this passage is that a person like Peter who is wrestling with, wait, am I really saved because the demands of Jesus are so high, can just take a look back at his own life and realize that, yes, the demands of Jesus are very high, but also, I did that. I think the truth is that we can take to the bank from this passage that if you're a real Christian, you could turn around in your life and do the same thing. You could turn around and look back at your life, not at a time you signed a card or prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or signed a church membership role, right? But you could look back at your life and see moments where the grace of God intersected with your life and Jesus called you to do crazy things, right? He called you to open up your home to someone. He called you to say no to something. He called you to say yes to something. He called you to give money to something. He called you to give time to something. He called you to change your job. He called you to move to a different city. He called you to marry a different person. He called you to break off a relationship, something really big. And you said yes, even though it seemed crazy because you're a Christian and that's what Christians do. And at the time, people were like, how are you going to do that? That sounds crazy. Like, I just feel like God is putting it on my heart to do it. And then you did it. The thing that you would have done would have been impossible for a human being just to conjure up on their own. But the grace of God intersected with your life, and you sacrificed, and sometimes in a big way, just because Jesus asked you to. But the way to know if you're a Christian is not to like look at the church membership to see what date you signed it. Right? The way to know that if you're a Christian is the same way it says throughout the entire New Testament. Jesus says, if you want to know what kind of tree you have, look at the fruit. The book of 1 John is all about reassurance. It says, I write these things that you might know you have eternal life. And so then he starts asking questions. He says, do you believe in the real Jesus? The Jesus the apostles believed in? Or do you believe in some weird other Jesus? He says, do you walk in the light? Do you walk in that truth? Do you flee from the darkness? Have you avoided sin? Do you walk in righteousness? Do you have a love for the church, for the people of Jesus? Do you have the supernaturally given love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you do, you're a Christian. That's what a Christian is. That's what they do with someone that God has transformed. And you've walked out of darkness into his light. You worship Jesus. You love people. You've been transformed. That's how you know by looking at what he's done in you as you've followed him. That's what Peter does turns around, he sees a track record of sacrifice, a track record of transformation, a track record of God saying, do this, and him trying it, a track record of saying, okay, you want me to walk on water? Here I come. If you look back at your life and you see a track record of sacrificing for the sake of the gospel, there's a strong chance the reason you are willing to sacrifice is because the grace of God was in your life, because the Spirit dwells in you, because you're truly a Christian. If you look back at your life and you see none of that, You show up at church, try to read your Bible, do good things, stay on God's good side. I don't think you get it. Like Jesus is teaching here, Christianity is a whole life commitment. It's releasing everything, no matter what it costs. Following Jesus, even when it means you're going to lose your spouse. Following Jesus, even when it means you're going to lose your job. Following Jesus even when it means you're going to lose your life. Following Jesus when it means you're going to lose your money. Following Jesus no matter what, because you want him more than any of this. 
There's a chance that if you're following Jesus for a long time, you're going to look back and see times that happened. There's also a chance you'll look back at your life and see times he tried to make that happen. You said, no, 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 no. You are resistant to the Spirit of God, which would make me believe and should make you believe that if you've always been resistant to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is not indwelling your life, transforming you, drawing you near to Christ. So what do you do? You're realizing you're not a believer in Jesus. Repent. It means turn from the way you've been living and cling to him instead. And change your mind about all these things and say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me for running from you. Forgive me for being so hard-hearted so long. And in the midst of that, you'll start realizing, wait, I, 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 this just feels like lip service. But I think at the same time, you need to realize that if your heart is breaking, God is working. So lean into that. Trust him. Follow him. And see what he does. In those moments in your life where you're doubting your salvation, you're doubting if you're a real Christian, here's some things that I wrote down that you could write down too, things that you can do in the moments you're tempted to doubt. Number one, in those moments you're tempted to doubt, look back at your life for evidences of grace. If you see the fruit of repentance in your life, you see the fruit of following Jesus in your life, you see the fruit of sacrifice in your life, you see the fruit of worship in your life, of heart change, of repentance, of transformation in your life, take those to, the, to heart, right? Take it to the bank. Jesus, my life has been changing because of you. Right? Some of you don't even realize this, but you've sacrificed a lot. You've sacrificed your retirement years because God called you to raise one of your grandkids, right? You sacrificed a bunch of money because God called you to help someone who was in need. You sacrificed just by your day-to-day -day life. You spent hours, hundreds of hours serving, discipling, mentoring people. You've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on kingdom causes over the course of your life because you've always given a large percentage of your income to God's work. And it never felt like a sacrifice because it was normal to you. But if you look back, you realize, wow, if I had that like $3 million back today, I'd be rich. Maybe that's why I'm not. <laughs> but you see this track record of sacrifice, and it reminds you, wait, God has done something in my life. Number two, when you're tempted to doubt, trust that it is God who saves you, not yourself. Right? You, you can't sacrifice yourself into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus sacrificed you into the kingdom of heaven. You turn to him, you trust him, and trust that his sacrifice gets you there. It's not... You can't give money to the church and become a Christian. That's not how it works. You can't show up. You can't sign up and just get saved. That's not how it works. God saves you as you cling to him, and he transforms you. The sacrifice, the transformation, is a response to what he's done in you. And third, in those moments you're tempted to doubt, ask God for new areas of trust and surrender. Now, this is one of those prayers like you pray for patience. No one likes to do that. So the reason that we don't want to pray for new areas to trust and surrender is because the moment we pray that prayer, we start bartering with God and asking him all the areas not to ask us to trust and surrender. God, I need a new area to trust. Just don't make me talk to my mom, right? God, I, I need a new area to trust. Just don't call me to the missions field, right? God, I, and that's fine, right? That's normal. That's not fine. That's normal. But I think what that's indicating is what Jesus was trying to do with this rich young ruler, trying to point out, here's an area you have not yet released, Right? There's a chance God will never call you to the missions field. A large chance. 
But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't open your heart in that area because it's an area of idolatry to you. You say, God, I'll give up everything. I just won't give up where I live. God, I'll give up everything. I just won't give up any money. God, I'll give up everything. I just won't give up this relationship. God, I... These are areas that we're clinging to too desperately. Like the person who wants to evacuate their house in a fire because they won't leave their painting behind. Let go. Let go. If you trust him, let go. A fourth thing, if you're tempted to doubt, this is the last thing. Remember that all our paths are different. Jesus asked the rich young ruler to sell his possessions, give them to the poor. He didn't ask the disciples to do that. He asked them to follow him, and they left their nets behind. They didn't have to go and sell their nets to the poor. There are people that God has used in mighty ways that haven't sold their possessions at all. There are people that God has used in amazing ways who've been called to do things you'll never be called to do. We're all on our own path. That's kind of where Jesus ends this little talk that he's giving to the disciples, right? He, he praises them for their sacrifice. He says, don't worry, in the kingdom of heaven, you'll have 10 times more than anything you left behind. And then he ends by saying, but the last will be first and the first will be last. And then he tells a story. He says, imagine there's this landowner who wants to hire some people to work in his vineyard. And he goes out early in the morning and he says, hey, I'll pay you, I'll pay you a denarius, that's a day's wage, to come work in my vineyard. And somebody says, yes, and they come to work. Then he goes out at noon and grabs somebody else and says, hey, I'll pay you a day's wage, a denarius, to come work in my vineyard. They're like, great. They come and they work. Then he finds someone at the 11th hour and says, hey, come on out. I'll pay you a day's wage, a denarius, to come work in my vineyard. They say, great. And they come and they all work till the end of the day. And then the landowner comes and he gives that guy who just started working like an hour ago a full day's wage. And everyone else is like, whoa, if he gets that much, how much am I going to get? And he goes down the line and gives everybody the same. Says, yeah, you all worked for different amounts of time. Some of you worked harder than others. Some of you came in earlier than others. But you all get the same. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, yes, your sacrifice was worth it because you will inherit so much more in the kingdom. But listen, even if you sacrifice 10 times more, you're not going to get 10 times more. You get eternity. You get heaven. You get the kingdom. You get the inheritance of the people of the kingdom of God. You get it all. You don't get more of it all than somebody else. You get it all. And so you can't sacrifice your way into the kingdom. Don't out-sacrifice the person next to you. Live the life God's called you to live. Sacrifice the areas he called you to sacrifice. Don't look at your neighbor. Look at Jesus. Trust in him and run the race he set before you. Trusting that all of us work in different ways, in different places, in the vineyard of Jesus, and we all earn the same eternity as a result. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship.